Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. I am recording this from the No Film School house at the Sundance Film Festival, where I spoke with How to Have Sex director Molly Manning Walker. Now, Molly is returning back for her film for a second year in a row, uh, having a film here at the festival. However, last year she was here as a director of photography for the film Scrapper. Now, How to Have Sex is a very different film, still very British in my opinion, and it follows three British girls on a clubbing holiday. And it really dives into the complexities of female friendship in that sort of teenage gray area and also the gray areas of consent. And this film in particular is celebrating its U.S. premiere. It comes out on February 2nd on MUBI. However, the film has been this festival darling. It it won the award at Cannes. It was at BFI. It was at TIFF. So we are catching Molly here at the end of her tour festival. And that is what we reflect on in our conversation in addition to her directorial debut moving into the director's seat after being a cinematographer for so long. So here's my interview with Molly Manning Walker. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Molly, to the No Film School podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the end, I guess, the end of your journey. This is the last the last interview and the potentially the last festival screening of your film. How does it feel? Yeah, good, I guess. I don't know. It's like a full circle moment when I was back here at Sundance. And it was my first kind of film festival that came to with Scrapper. And so, yeah, it's been a bit of a crazy year, but feels like a nice end moment. Have there been instances where people run into you and they're like, oh, you're back. Like, what have you been doing in this last year? And you're like, well, I made a movie and it's here. <laughs> mm, not really. To be honest, we haven't been here that long. So I think we haven't had that much time on the on the street, but it's really nice audiences here. And yeah, it's great to screen the film. Yeah. I, I ended up seeing Scrapper when it played at the Nevada City Film Festival. And, and I didn't know anything about it. And I had seen the title and I was expecting like a, a gritty drama and and it was just a delight and i just yeah so different so it was so cool to see your see your name and congratulations on the the directorial debut thank you thank you so let's let's talk about the film itself what was the inspiration for telling this story in particular yeah i guess it came from lots of different holidays that i'd been on as a 16 year old 17 year old and kind of on reflection talking to friends about it and realizing that we'd kind of all learned how to have sex wrong and that we'd gone through these kind of mad experiences where we'd pressure each other into stuff and yeah so it was kind of like trying to examine that time in our lives. When you were writing the script which you did as well what was some some unexpected discoveries that you had about like re-examining that time? I guess like how horrible we were to each other without kind of realizing and how we put up with so much from each other and called that friendship. 
And actually, it was kind of harsh on each other. Yeah, yeah. And now that, you know, the festival or the film has had such a wide festival reception and has received all this acclaim and is coming out on movie in a couple of weeks, has there been anything that has been surprising about the reception and people watch, watching the film and how they're reacting to it? Yeah, I think we always kind of hoped and expected that women would feel seen by the film. But I think what has felt quite radical is like men acknowledging that they have learned how to have sex wrong and that they've put people in uncomfortable positions. And I don't think that was expected. Yeah, that is the thing that stuck with me particularly. I went to University of Michigan. It was a party school. Blacking out was like kind of glorified. And the conversations afterwards, you know, with the girls laughing about it and sort of laughing about these situations and scenarios and looking back now, I'm like, wow, that was not okay. And seeing, seeing that explored in the film was like just this universal thread that was so refreshing to see and refreshing to see done so well. It was very powerful. Yeah. I think that we all kind of learned to drink wrong as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's it's kind of it's sad looking back on it, but I'm like, it was so glorified. I, I mean, specifically, I, I've heard about the party the party cultures in the UK and like going to these going to these like islands specifically, and then it's just glorified in the Greek life system of you know the US as well. And yeah. it's kind of this universal thing that is. I'm so glad you're examining it. Okay, so you did have done extensive work as a DP. So let's talk about how you discovered the the look of the film. I know you worked with like Canon lenses, but talk to me more about that process and then also moving into finding a DP for your own project. Yeah, so we got really, we had a really great test period in that because all the tourists were going to leave the island, we pre-shot in the first week of prep some of the pool scenes, some of the party scenes, because we wanted to use real tourists. And what that meant was that we got a camera package and like a bunch of different lenses sent over. So like zoom lenses and K35s and like loads of stuff. And we, and LF, and then we shot a bunch in LF mode and in 35 mode. And I guess what that did was allowed us to test what the look was. And then the colorist, Joseph Bicknell, he built a really great lot based off, the 35 mil photographs that I'd taken as a reference. Um, and that was a really great lot that we, we didn't just like change and, and actually helped us so much in the grade. We only had a really short amount of time of great to grade it. And so because we'd stuck quite strongly to this lot, it, it really helped us. So yeah, we went with K35s and, and the LF, the mini LF. And choosing a DP was really difficult. I'm like really fussy about handheld and and so, and I wanted it to feel like almost documentary. And so I chose a documentary DP who has great handheld and was really passionate about the script. And his name's Nicholas Canagini. Shout out to Nicholas. Yeah, shout out Nicholas. Was it hard to let go of the camera? Yeah, it was really difficult. It was probably one of the hardest bits of the process. And I think it's just more like almost how I see a film set is, has always been through a lens and through holding a camera. And it was similar on my shorts, you know, it was like almost your POV of the set changes, like you're not looking at it directly through the camera. So I just had to kind of like reprogram my brain a little bit, which was difficult. 
You did it. (laughs) I'd love to hear about how you approached directing the scenes, especially some of the more intimate scenes, but the scenes where you are with the actors or with these characters for extensive periods of time. Like what what was your process for for letting those scenes unfold? Yeah. So in some places they're much more improvised than scripted and in but in most places they're really heavily scripted and that's because six people improvising becomes really chaotic very quickly because you it's very hard to track and it's very hard to cut because you end up with if you're cut if you're covering it off in like people's close-ups you end up with a scene that doesn't make any sense because everyone does everything differently every time so quickly realized that when they were together as a group it was much more difficult to improvise whereas we kind of tried to stick to the script and allow people to throw in words or phrases that added to it but didn't take away from the essence of what the script was doing. Often, like, we got, because the actors were so good at their jobs, we got the time to experiment. So, like, the first, the, often their first takes would be really amazing. We'd be like, okay, let's just try this scene with no words or let's try it with where you're only talking about chips or, you know, whatever the, the, that version is, which in the edit gave us lots of kind of great material to work with. The ensemble, I mean, obviously it's led by Mia, I'm blanking on her last name. Kit McKinnon-Bruce. Yes, yes. And who plays Tara, who is fantastic. And, and, but coming into the film, I was like, I'm not, I was like with this group that then becomes this bigger, more amorphous, like entity partying through. Talk to me about the casting process and how you found this like very authentic group of teens who are out there having a good time. Yeah, it was a really intense process. We cast for like six months, I think. Wow. Got really lucky in finding Mia quite early in the process because all of us were quite kind of worried that she would be the most difficult person to find. But her tape came in pretty early. And so what that meant was that we could screen test her with everyone else who came in, which meant that we were like really naturally building this friendship group. And often people would work on their own and then you would put them in the group and they wouldn't work. So it was kind of a fascinating process. And then like very late in the process, I decided that the the third couple, so and it used to be Greg, would be a, a queer couple. And so we changed it to Paige and the casting director like hated me oh. and was like, we've seen 300 people for this role already. And she was like, does that mean we have to find a Bradford lesbian to fit in with the boys? And I was like, how difficult could it be? And we searched on TikTok Bradford lesbian and then we cast the first person that came up. Amazing. They're great when you were doing that sort of like testing process, like when did you find that chemistry between all the characters? Like what were you looking for? Pretty instantly. I mean, whenever, like I remember the first time Mia, Lara, Sean and Sam met and Sean and Sam were like doing the worm on the floor and the girls were like, it was kind of like the beautiful chaos that we see in the film. And yeah, instantly we knew that it was going to work. And Sean and Sam were actually friends from before and they've been in stuff together and I think like the day before they came down for the chemistry read they were like hanging out anyway and they were like oh what are you up to this week and he's like one of them was like oh, I'm going down to do a screen test for a film and Sean was like I- I'm also going down to do was it called and then they were like how to have sex and they're like wait are we screen testing oh. the same role and they're like no different roles and then they kind of realized that they could be in it together which was nice yeah how is it how do you wrangle such energy because, you know, you have a young group of, I guess it would be six plus people. Like, what was it like managing that, directing that? 
super difficult and like the energy was always super high, which, you know, is not always the easiest to navigate on a film set, but I don't think we could have got the performances without that. And yeah, they were all so passionate about the project that it, it kind of translated really well, but it was definitely difficult navigating six really high energy young people. Yeah. And yeah, they definitely, they they still, we're still like very chaotic as a, as a crew. Yeah. I mean, that like Bacchanalian energy is so critical to the execution and critical to the story. It really works. Um, how would you categorize yourself like as a director? Are you speaking using like the classic, you know, director terms to get a performance? Or are you more talking about like character motivations? Like how did you work with each of each of them? And I guess you kind of feel it out as you go through the process and different people need different things. Like lots, some of the actors needed to talk about what was driving them and like where it came from. And other actors just wanted to like play and figure it out together in that way. So yeah, you kind of realize as you go on the process. And I guess the difficult thing about having six people is like trying to figure out who's burning out or like who's got the energy first or who gets bored quickly and you kind of need to shoot them first. So it was it was definitely a process of yeah, figuring out when people's performances were best and yeah. The, specifically, the burning out is fascinating to me because, you know, often we find ourselves, if we're on set, like trying to shape a performance, but sometimes you can actually kill it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And like you, and then when you're behind the monitor and you see it and then you, your heart dies a little bit and you're like, like how, what was your tactic for sort of reinvigorating when you were seeing that? Would you, would you move to a different setup or kind of give them space? Yeah. I don't know exactly. I guess one of the main things that kept the set alive was that we would do these experimental takes. So Mm -hmm. if it felt like everything was falling flat, we'd be like, okay, let's just do this scene with no dialogue or let's do it with where you can't stop dancing or, you know, so that would always keep both the crew and the cast very energized because no one really knew what was coming next. Um, Yeah. How many takes were you usually going for? Not that many. We we managed to shoot a lot in, in the space of time that we had. So we were moving quite quickly. One of the things that the film, that is a through line of the film, are these dance scenes and these parties, which again, are so part of like the setting in this world that they're throwing themselves in and are so excited to be a part of. But thinking about like the, the execution and the production of that and even directing to get that energy, which I assume you were not you didn't have music playing or you only had the music going. Yeah, it was so chaotic. I mean, getting 300 people to dance to no music and then choreograph the scene and get the performance within that was like really intense. And we did all the party scenes in the first two weeks. And because we were worried that all the young people were going to leave the island and go back to Athens or back to the mainland. So like Baptism of Fire, second day directing 200 people, third day, 300 people. Fourth day, I think we did one of the assaults. Fifth day, like another 200 people. So it was literally like, (laughs) let's like, but in a way I think it was good because the energy was really high and the crew were still very like, you know, when it gets to the end of the shoot, everyone's kind of dragging their feet a little bit. So in that way, I think it was great, but it was definitely... I didn't. I, di- I don't think I'd like really expected how difficult three hundred people staring at you, going, "What are we doing?" <laughs> is and like resetting their action every time you do a take and making sure they're not. There's always one extra doing something kind of strange. Like you have to like figure that Reel out them in. without like 
your actors getting bored. So yeah, it was it was definitely a trial by fire. Yeah, exactly. How do you maintain like your? You've been on set, you've on many features. Like, how do you maintain your energy to like the stamina of it? This is something we talk a lot about on the podcast because you know, it's so easy to burn out in this industry, especially like in the indie film space when often we're in these extreme situations or we're wearing multiple hats. So we're always looking for advice from, from filmmakers on how they, what, what is their tactic for not burning out? Yeah, I mean, I kind of knew the stamina of it based off Scrapper. And so I was probably the fittest I've ever been. I was like really working out leading up to it. I would like drink a green juice every morning with like high iron situation going on because the set food is always so, I think that's part of it. You get so bogged down in, in the food. Yeah. And then I don't drink while I'm shooting and I try and like sleep as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, obvious stuff, but it's definitely difficult and that anxiety can keep you awake. Yeah. So you're actually the second person in the last like three weeks who brought up not drinking while being on set. And we had Robert Yaoman on a couple of weeks ago and he was like, we love to sit around the table on Wes Anderson's films, which are also destination films most of the time. So like there's this big family environment and he's like, and now... I'm allowed to have one drink and then I go right to bed. And and it's so easy for that to be like sort of slipping into the culture as well. But like, yeah, again, again, I think it's like very important to be pacing ourselves, especially if you're leading the whole, the whole experience. Yeah, I definitely knew that in that space, it was quite dangerous that it could become, you know, you're in a party town, there's alcohol around you, we're with loads of young people. So I kind of just knew that I had to keep like very sober dur- during it. Yeah. To maintain that sort of energy. What was the most challenging scene to shoot? Probably, I mean, there was a few very challenging scenes. The blowjob on stage in front of 300 people. It's because it was like an assault and intimate, but also which had like multiple parts to it and multiple yeah, performance pieces in it. it was super delicate for the actor to perform. And also 300 people staring at him. And it was in the middle of the night in winter and they all had to be wearing bikinis and no clothes. So that was really techy. And then also the beach scene, the assault scene on the beach, it was like, again, an intimate scene in a public space. They have to go in and out of the water, get dry, get wet. It was like, there was lots of, yeah, it was very tricky as well. Now we're in this new world where intimacy coordination is a thing and it's expected and and thank God for that. Can you talk about your work in that in that space? Yeah, I think it's really important. And I think the safety of our cast and, and crew were were like paramount to, to us and, and the finances as well. So it was talked about right from the beginning. So we had an intimacy coordinator brought in at rehearsal stage during when we were in London and then for all of the intimate scenes. And I think it's just so important that the cast filled that protection. And also as a, as a cinematographer, I've been in situations where it's like, 4 p.m. on a Friday and they're like, quick, we've got to shoot a rape scene. Like, go, 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 go. And you're like, Fuck. like, you know, don't know what other people have gone through on cruise. And I think that pressure to deliver at speed is like really unhealthy. But it, so it was kind of like, so we had the intimacy coordinator who helped us choreograph all the scenes and they were probably the most rehearsed bits of the film. But also it was kind of bigger than that, the culture of 
the film was that anyone could speak up at any point and that we, you know, we were a really team atmosphere. We played football every Sunday, barbecues and sing-alongs and went swimming and boats and yeah, so it was great. Can we dive in a little bit more specifically about like how you set that culture with the crew as well? I actually, I've never even talked about specifically like intimacy coordination and also creating a safe set in that context outside of talent. Yeah. So that's really like, I think important. And yeah, what were some of the, like, how did you set that? Yeah, I think we we talked about it a lot, like very openly on set. It was like, this is really difficult. And I knew that loads of women on the set had experienced what we were shooting. So it was very fragile, especially when we were shooting the bedroom scene, it was really hard. And and so we just tried to keep it a really open space. And and I guess, yeah, my experience as a DP helped that because I kind of knew what it was like to witness something. And and often crew aren't thought about in that way because it's like it's your job and you just you're meant to sort of like keep quiet and keep moving on it. And and I think that's something that maybe those that intimacy coordination needs to be brought into like a bigger realm in terms of that. We also had counselors available to any cast and crew. And yeah, so it was, yeah, it was hopefully dealt with really well. I think so. Yeah. I mean, that feels like an industry standard that should be expected. And yeah, you're probably paving the way in many ways. I think it's also probably something that as the crews become more diverse, there's more room for it because there's more women at the top and there's more people talking about it in a different way than it has been done in the past, maybe. In your experience, and we can talk outside of how to have sex in particular, have either you or somebody that you've worked with been able to like raise a, a flag in that situation? Like, I think it's really important to model or hear how you can voice this kind of stuff, especially on set in these high pressure environments. A lot of our listeners are working on on indie films or short films or student films where they're may not necessarily be the same type of leadership. So what would you say to somebody who's like in that situation needs to articulate this? Yeah, I mean, I guess try and flag it with the producers or not always possible and like have flagged things with producers in the past and it hasn't gone well. I think you quickly get an idea of who's around you and who's the safe space. And yeah, it's complicated. It's different on so many, on different sets. but. If yeah, the more I, I'd hope, I'd like to think that more producers are getting up to speed on that stuff. It's a unique industry that we're in, where we are thrown into these stints of working very intensely in these high pressure environments, but there is no HR, and it is falling to the producers who are also, you know, oftentimes making sure everyone is also being fed and have a place to lay their head at the end of the day. And and I think it's really important that we're empowering people around around us in those situations to like identify and articulate when something doesn't feel right. Whether it's and actually I think in general we do a better job with like safety. Like there's a safety meeting at the top yeah, of totally. every day. So when it comes to psychological safety, whether it's like in any spectrum, like being able to talk about it is crucial. So cool. What else would you like to share with our listeners, our emerging people who didn't go to film school and some who did? I don't know. 
We did like lots of, I'd, I'd storyboarded all of the, the whole film by hand and never showed it to anyone. <laughs> and it's pretty much shot for shot the entire film. Wow. I'm like a real prep freak. Like I, yeah. made, I made like a 600 page document that is the shot list, which is like every shot with a reference and a Artemis attached to it. And then often don't look at it when we're shooting because don't want to like over cramp the brain you know or like force it into a situation well it's probably like deep deep in there because you spent all that time were you was that something where you went away did it all in one go or was it a gradual process it was like gradually over prep yeah yeah what else can we share something that someone told me in the edit which actually saved the edit like in a big way was like watch your film on mute and see if it still makes sense what Um, did you discover when you did that I guess because it's a film that doesn't have that many words, like you can hopefully track her emotions through her face. Like it became very apparent which what wasn't working and what was working, which is cool. So what's next? Um, just going to try and get back to writing now and yeah. focus on the next project. I mean, there's a few ideas floating about, but nothing is super solid. Are you sticking to directing? That's the plan, yeah. I'm sure it will unfold that way. I can't see. I mean, this is just fantastic and I can't wait for it to be out in the world. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I can't wait for people to see it. Uh, well, congratulations. And then the last thing that we always like to do with our filmmaker, or for our listeners and with our guests is to ask what advice you have for an emerging filmmaker, somebody who is just getting their start. Maybe they're about to make their first short film. Maybe they're about to make their first feature. What advice do you have for them? Yeah, I, I went through this stage where I was like really depressed and I wasn't working loads and I was just making, and I decided I would just make stuff, something every day. So I was like, just taking my iPhone out and shooting something every day, whether it be like a little documentary, like find a character and make something about someone. And I think it is hours on the clock and the more time you put into something, you definitely eventually break through. So yeah. We all, we all have a, a phone that we can shoot on exactly. in theory. So, well, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations. I'll share more details about where you can watch the movie in just a moment. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Molly, for joining us for this conversation, for geeking out with us about lenses and all the good stuff. And thank you for making a movie that is complex and beautiful and heart-wrenching and also not saccharine. I really appreciated this portrait of this particular moment in time and Mia McKenna-Bruce's performance as Tara just shook me to my core and has stuck with me. I hope that you got as much out of this conversation as I did. And you can get more No Film School at nofilmschool.com where you can find even more coverage from the Sundance Film Festival. You can also continue to listen to the podcast this week and next as we continue to release our conversations with filmmakers here. Finally, you can follow us across social media at No Film School. Let us know what you thought of this conversation. And thank you so much for listening. 